Welcome back. Richard, this week we are going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk on a topic that is very timely uh, because we have broad testing that's coming up very, very soon in our um, public schools, uh, especially here in Florida. We have all of our high stakes testing uh, that'll be starting back in the next couple of weeks. And so we're going to talk a little bit about labeling, um, identifying students with um, different conditions, different um, disorders or different learning problems. And we're going to talk about some of the consequences of that, uh, quite related to a previous podcast we did on the Rosenthal and Jacobson effect. Yeah, you know, we've talked about Rosenthal and Jacobson before. Um, I was putting together uh, one outline, you know, during the week, uh, you and I sort of talk about different ideas about podcasts. And um, I was fiddling with one and decided to go into this uh, site and found this one. And I thought, well, this is interesting because earlier in the week, there was an article written that uh, the author, the writer of the article, suggesting that we should redo uh, the ADHD label. Um, and so I thought, what's all this labeling talk, you know, the ADHD, and, and now I run into this specific learning disorder. And specific learning disorders, that's the name that they're given in, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, have all, has always been a controversial field. Right. Um, you know, the, there's uh, the many controversies. We're going to talk about those. But, um, but I thought this is kind of interesting because it's a topic you and I have discussed many times is the, uh, the use of labels right. and the effect that a label can have on a person. And in this case, um, he's, this is an article that is the case against labeling. Right. Um, and there's a subtitle, how a learning disorder diagnosis could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. This article was written just a few days ago, uh, March 18th, 2021 by Peter Gray. Peter Gray knows what he's talking about. He's been at this a very long time. He's a research professor at Boston College. Um, and he has one of those standard psychology textbooks. There are a few of them out there. Right. And, uh, he has one of them, and it's now in its eighth edition. So whenever you have a book in its eighth edition, it means somebody's buying it and using it and that it has a very good reputation. So Peter Gray is well known in the field. So again, this is a person who speaks with authority. Absolutely. And so just as a reminder, the Rosenthal-Jacobson effect um, is that idea of the, as you said, self-fulfilling prophecy, um, where you know, the, the expectations that we have for others tends to be, um, tends to predict the way in which they, they perform. So if we, if we tell people that we think they're gonna do well and we um, give them a lot of that kind of feedback, uh, lo and behold, they tend to do a little bit better. If we tell them and we sort of hold the expectation that they're gonna do poorly, they, they tend to, to struggle. Uh, we were talking when we did the last podcast about <laughs> this uh, Rosenthal-Jacobson effect, we talked about the study that they did in California, where at the end of the year, uh, there was a, uh, a writing sample and teachers would sort of somewhat randomly on the back of their test say, um, you know, uh, I, I believe in you, or, um, you, know, this, you know, this, you did great work, good job, um, I believe in you, no matter how well the student did. Um, they just kind of put that positive message. And sure, surely, those students for whom they wrote that little message on the back, they performed significantly better on the end of year statewide test the following school year. That did, so they didn't even have that same teacher again. Um, 
which is a pretty fascinating result. You know, and Bernie, it reminds, it's a robust finding. I mean, yeah. Rosenthal and Jacobson did this research back in 1960. You're not going to tell them what the study was? Yeah, gonna... go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. So, but don't you feel sorry for Jacobson? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's like <laughs> in those years, because um, it's known as the Rosenthal effect, not the Rosen. Some people, some writers will say the Rosenthal-Jacobson effect, but in the literature, it's the Rosenthal effect, even though uh, two people did the study. But, um, but it's a robust finding, and, and it's been replicated over and over and over again. And it's one of those things that, despite the fact that it's replicated, that it's robust, that we know it's, that we know it's, a, it's a real phenomenon, um, we continue to um, avoid right. and not consider it in a public policy at the level of public policy. Right. Yeah. It, it's and it's um, it's been their, their original research, as you said, was done back in the '60s, and it's been it has been replicated many, many times, mm -hmm. and um, very consistently, they it has been found that you know the. The expectation that, especially with kids, the expectation that parents or teachers have for the students reflects how well they end up doing. And so, um, so yeah, it's sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and, and I think that the idea of, of considering this as it relates to labels is really a, a, an important thing to consider. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know that you see this too. You know, we oftentimes have parents come into the office and talk about, you know, talk about their, their child and some of the difficulties that they may be having, but they will say, I, I don't want him labeled. I don't want him, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want a, a, a brand um, stamped on him that's going to follow him the rest of his life or something like that. And, right. you know, so at those times we sort of think about the power of the label, but, uh, you know, Thinking about it from the perspective of the Rosenthal-Jacobson effect, I think it's really, I think it's really important thing to think about. Yeah, um, no, it's really true, and we see it not only in educational circles, but we also see. I mean, there are plays and movies and books yeah. written about this. You know, there's a famous book by Oscar Wilde called Pygmalion. You know, the dressing up of a poor girl and changing her, and then of course the movie My Fair Lady, which is based on. Uh, the original book by uh, about big men. Um, and so it's true that if you tell a person they're bad, if you tell a person they're incompetent, if you tell somebody you can't over and over again, you start to believe it. And you know, so why, why should I try? Nothing, nothing's going to change anyway. So why should I try? Right. So, um, so the subsequent studies that have been done since 1968 um, suggest that what changed when teachers, teach, the teachers were not told about the study. And I think that's why we can't do this study anymore. Right. Uh, I'm not sure we'd be allowed to do, to right. do the study as they did it. Um, what the teachers weren't told about um, how the kids were divided. Um, they were just told that one group was gonna make substantial gains and the other group, um, we predicted that the other group wouldn't. Um, and the teachers uh, didn't know what, they, they were only given this group of students and they, they had expectations. And what uh, subsequent research suggests is that the teachers changed. They, they created a different, uh, they created an atmosphere and an environment for these kids whom they expected would excel during that particular school year. Uh, they gave them more challenging work. 
Uh, they acknowledged their effort and their initiative. Um, they gave more encouragement. They were more patient, and they had higher expectations. And I, I you know, I really I don't don't ever want to underemphasize higher expectations. They had the expectation that you could. It was a wonderful story uh, yesterday on the radio about um, a student at the University of Texas. University of Texas is is starting to make these kinds of accommodations. And they have this one particular student was uh, taking a calculus class. She was really struggling, but they were they were tutored in a at a slower pace. And you took you took calculus, didn't you? Um, yes. And you know how hard it is. And you know that that time when it just clicks. Yeah. And then it's okay. Now I get it. The the, the aha. That's what the story was about. And this girl, she was at the end of the semester, and it finally clicked. And she got an A on the final. And in this particular course, if you got an A on the final, it completely took care of any of the grades. So she got an A. And she had failed all the tests up to that, up to that time. Yeah. And um, and her family said, "Well, you can come back home and go to a community college and all that." She said that made it worse. Yeah. But when it finally clicked, she said, "Oh, okay, now I get it." And she got an A in the course. And that's the kind of experience, you know, you, you have the expectation that you can learn it, that you can do it, you just have to create the right circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So positive outcomes create pos uh, positive labels, create positive outcomes. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it's remarkable the power of belief, you know, when somebody, when you know that somebody believes in you, um, it, it's, there's just something that it does to your motivation, to your drive, to your um, overall process. So it's like the placebo effect. Yeah. Right? Hey, there was, an there was an article this week about supplements for mental improvements, brain enhancements. Uh -huh. And the <laughs> there's no evidence that they were physically, right. those supplements can't get to the brain. <laughs> they, the molecules are too big to cross the blood-brain barrier. And what people are reporting is probably a placebo effect that they believe it's gonna help, and lo and behold, they think they're doing better. This is the sort of the educational analog of a placebo effect. Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the, the placebo effect is real. And, and as, is, as is this effect, it's, it's a real effect. It, it has real um, consequences and it, um, and, and they last. You know, when a person, you know, is part of what they, what we say when, we say that a student just needs one adult, one caring adult, you know, right. to overcome a, a bunch of, you know, maybe the adverse childhood experiences and things like that um, is sort of the same thing. Just, just knowing that somebody believes in you um, can carry you through a, a, a lot of adversity. All right. And, you know, um, Ben Carson, Oprah Winfrey, and Maya Angelou, all in their um, stories, in their autobiographies, all mentioned that, that there was this one person who believed in them. And that's what changed everything. Right. Right. Yeah. So in this in this article, he um, Gray talks about whether these kinds of um, whether labels, um, diagnoses, such as a specific learning disability, um, if that having that diagnosis can negatively affect a student's performance, negatively right. affect how well a student will do in school. Just as we say, well, these students are going to do well, and they tend to do well. If you say the student has a learning problem, 
is that going to be a, is there going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy whereby that student then has learning problems? Right, right. And, you know, the interesting thing about this label, um, and he uses the label that's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it's important to point out that there's also a definition in the IDEA, a little bit different, but in DSM, the, the, the definition itself contains the seeds of the problem because the definition says it's a neurodevelopmental disorder with a biological origin, okay? And then the other part of the definition is it's an abnormality at the cognitive level right. that is associated with the behavioral signs of this. So it's, it's both a bi biological disorder and a cognitive disorder, okay? And he said, therein lies the seeds of the problem. And he said, <clears throat> in, he goes through the qualifications and we know what most of those are. A, 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 a learning disability or a learning disorder can't be the result of intellectual impairment. Right. It can't be the result of a brain injury sometime after birth. And it can't be because you didn't um, have access to quality instruction. If you haven't been in school, if you started, if the first time you had a school experience was eight years of age, right. you wouldn't say that person's learning disabled, they just haven't had instruction, okay? And if a person is in, has an intellectual impairment, um, you wouldn't call that a learning disability because a learning disability by definition is you have the ability to do the work and for some reason you're not doing it. Right. And that some reason is internal to, right. the, to the person, to the individual, okay? So the assumptions right. behind learning disabilities is there is some defect in some specific brain region or regions. Some area of the brain is not doing, and we, and we talk about that. People talk about that as, oh, well, that's, you know, there's some area of the brain that's not working correctly. Um, or that there is some underlying cognitive deficit that for some reason you have some uh, thing that you're, that mentally you just can't compute this right. particular thing. And we used, to, we used to refer to those things as cognitive processes that we, we would do when we did testing in the past for um, learning disabilities. We would look at their IQ um, so that you have that part to, to make sure it's not an intellectual disability. Um, we would look at academic achievement so that we could see if there's a discrepancy between the two. Right. And we would look at cognitive processing to see where maybe not the specific brain region, but to be able to you know, identify and, and say, yes, there is something wrong with the way that the brain is functioning and the student has problems with their memory or their visual mode of processing or, or something to that effect. And as long as you could find something, you could make the child eligible, um, whether it was real or not, okay? Um, you could make the child eligible. So you would look at intellectual ability and then achievement and then processing. And lo and behold, if you found low scores, you could say, well, this child has a learning disability. And what, really what you're saying, not that the child had, we're saying the child has something, but we really don't know. I mean, we know that the child is scoring on these tests this way, but it doesn't mean that the child has something, but that's the assumption that we make. Right, that, and I, I did a presentation this past week about learning disabilities. And one of the things I said is that the, the challenges with the diagnosis of a learning disability is that it's sort of a um, whatever's left. Um, you, you've ruled out an intellectual problem, so it's not that. You ruled out a, a traumatic brain injury, so it's not that. You ruled out some other medical condition, so it's not that. 
And as you rule out all these other things, it's like, okay, the only thing that's left is a learning disability. That's right. what it's got to be. And that makes it a hypothetical construct. Right. Okay. And we've talked about that before on the program. A hypothetical construct cannot be the cause. It can't cause something. Okay. Right. So you say, well, she has dyslexia. Dyslexia is a hypothetical construct. But, I mean, we call something dyslexia, but it's just made up. I mean, it's a made up word. You just look at a pattern of behaviors and we say, okay, it's just like a syndrome. Right. It's a pattern of symptoms, it's a pattern of behaviors, and right. so that's how we're labeling it. Right. And for years, um, it, throughout the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and into the 90s and the early 2000s, people would say, well, she has a learning disability, therefore we have to do this. Well, technically the learning disability isn't the cause or the effect. It, it just, it's a label that we use uh, to sort of, to communicate with each other, but it's not, it's, it, it's probably something that has to do with the brain, but we've never found anything. I mean, we, we don't have any technology. We, we've not found it. anything diagnostic. We, we found that people with learning disabilities specific, you know, we can specifically talk about reading disabilities, that there is something different about their brain but you can't do a brain scan and say, oh, this is a, the brain scan of a person with a learning disability. Right. Um, you can say, oh, this person has a learning disability. Oh, and look at their brain. It's a little bit different. Right. But on an individual level and the diagnostic level, you can't make that comparison or that, that connection. Right. And people ask that all the time is, well, can't we do an MRI or functional MRI or PET scan? And no, you can't. All we know about neuroimaging is that Groups of students who have reading, groups of individuals with reading problems tend to produce similar brain patterns. Right. It doesn't mean the brain pattern is responsible for that. It just means they have similar brain patterns. What the brain is doing, we have no idea. Right. We, we don't have the technology to study neurons or, or even clusters of neurons. We know that, that an area might be active, but we don't really know what that area is doing. We don't even know what a memory is. You know, right. other than a collection of cells. And so, so the, the, the question, the challenge that this article poses to what it posed to Dr. Bernie and me was that the evidence isn't strong that labeling leads to beneficial treatments. Right. There, there's, there's, there's nothing, there's very little out there that says, if I, if I say that you have dyslexia, that that will necessarily lead to treatments. Treatments are better, they're, they're getting better all the time, but there's no, there's no compelling evidence that labeling leads, leads to beneficial treatments. And, uh, and there are good reasons to think that it might actually hinder the whole process. That, so what we're, what we're challenged with here is that on the one hand, the label may not result in good treatment, and I mean, goodness knows there's a lot of bogus treatments out there. Uh, and some people are making a lot of money on those bogus treatments. And at the same time, the label may do more harm than good. Right. Okay. And we're going to, well, it's going to be interesting as we go through some of this because, um, um, because we also know that the label provides access to things. Um, yes. There's, right. some, there's some positive sides to things. So we'll, we'll kind of mm -hmm. do that as we go as well. Right. But, you know, when we think about the, the negative consequences or potential negative consequences of, of labels, you know, there, there are a number of things that we have to watch out for. Right. We certainly don't want, and we have seen this over and over and over again with both children and adults, to be honest, mm -hmm. um, is this, it leads to 
potentially leads to a sense of helplessness. Well, I can't help it. I have a learning disability or I can't help it. He can't help it. He has ADHD. Um, he can't help it. He's an alcoholic. Um, you know, we, 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 when we use that disease model um, from the perspective of, of diagno- diagnosing, we run into that problem where we become helpless about it. And we see that play out all the time. We, how many times have we heard, I'm not good at math? Right. That, that, that statement, it just, it just breaks my heart when kids say that because with adequate instruction, every, most, virtually all kids can do math. I mean, they, 85, 90% of kids could learn how to do algebra, at least through algebra one. But they're, they're, there's this belief that I'm not good at math or I'm not good at foreign languages. You learn how to speak. If you went to that country, you learn how to speak the language. Okay? Right. It's not that you're not good at it. So, but, it, but if you can say that there's something wrong with my brain, then it, it creates a sense of, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm helpless. And yet, well, what's the second one? So the first one is, is you get this sense of helplessness that I can't do anything about it. Right. And the second is um, you self-efficacy or, or agency. Mm-hmm. You know, right. there's nothing I can do about it. Right, right. Um, and that, I think, is where, where we really start getting into those problems. Right. It's one thing to say, you know, I can't, it's, it's a problem with my brain. Um, you know, it's, I, I have ADHD, so it's tough for me to sit still and, and to pay attention. But when you get to the point where you say, I can't do anything about it, right. that's, when, that's when you really start to see some limitations caused by the label. Right, right. And then the third is negative attributional style, where you blame yourself. Right. You know, you say, well, I'm, it, it's, it's my inadequacies. Right. And then you, then you start to damage your self-esteem because you're like, I can't, I, I can't do it um, because there's something wrong with me. Um, and if you take those three, those first three, the problem is, is that eventually you're going to ask the child to do more work or to work harder or to be involved, to be completely engaged in the intervention. You know, you can't, the mistake we made for decades was we, we led people to believe that we could provide an intervention that would make them better. And so it made the student passive and it put all the pressure on the teacher. Right. That's not how this works. These students who do struggle must be more, more engaged, not less engaged. Okay? And if they're, if they're feeling that they can't, they're gonna be less engaged when what we want is, is more engagement. And, and as a consequence of all of that, we end up having um, the, the outcome where, where teachers lower their expectations. I don't expect you to learn it. You're, you're damaged in some way, so I don't expect you to learn it. Right. And then that's where we get in, that's where it leads back to this, that Rosenthal and Jacobson effect, where because the expectations are lower, now right. we get into this perpetual cycle where we just maintain these lower expectations and the students meet those expectations. Yeah, I don't expect you to be able to do this upper level work. So I'm gonna make accommodations or I'm gonna make it easier for you or I'm going to expect less of you. And, and, and where this really becomes a problem is with intensive classes. You know, when, when you score in Florida at least, and I, I'm sure this is playing out in other states, in Florida, if you score low enough on a reading or math, end of your exam, uh, you're put into intensive instruction the following year. And those are deadly places for most kids. They, they, they take away um, an elective. Right. You, so, first of all, you remove something that right. makes school fun. Right. And we're talking about middle and high school. 
yeah, so the student may, you know, the, if the one saving grace for that student is to be able to go to school for PE or for art or something like that, and yeah. they end up in one of those intensive classes, then that, that elective is removed. Right, and, and if you have to take two intensive classes, right. and the kids hate them, they're boring, it's watered down, it's very low level skill, a lot of memorization, repetition, and it's deadly. And so again, you want engagement, but you crush, you're crushing students with this um, content-free, you know, memorization at a very low level. Right. I remember one kid, he would sit, poor kid, I felt so bad for him. He'd go to school every day at the right time and he'd sit in his truck for the entire first period so that he didn't have to go into the intensive class to get extra help in, I think he was reading. Yeah. So sad. Yeah, it is. And, um, and, and a lot of this is based upon sort of the assumption. And we, we talked about, I remember when um, No Child Left Behind first came out and the, the assumption was that all kids were gonna be reading at a third grade level. Um, and the, the idea that all students at whatever age can learn at the same rate, at the same pace, the same material, um, and that you know, this is a, a universal thing for all students. And if they're not doing that, then there's something wrong with the student. Um, and, and we know, my goodness, statistically, there's no way that that can be true um, because we all learn at different rates and we all have different experiences that lead us to different places. Um, we all know that that can't be true, yet we still hold that expectation. Right. That all students can learn at the same rate, at the same pace, in the same classroom. When we moved to Florida, my, one of my children was in the third grade, and um, I noticed that there was a new skill. And this is the first time I'd ever seen this. There was a new skill presented every day, and and if you and if you didn't learn that skill that day, and so the teacher, his third grade teacher, explained that. These are the, they're called the Sunshine State Standards. And it's based on the idea that every day you learn a new skill. And after 180 days of, of the school year, you're tested to make sure you learn those 180 things. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a whole new concept because what if a child isn't ready or able to learn the new skill every day? Do they just get left behind? Do they fail? Do they just get a little, what happens to them? Right. And, and they do get left behind. And, and the irony is, yes, um, even with that, yes, there's, a, there's 180 skills. You learn one a day, but we're going to test you on those skills at day 120. Okay. There, there's 60 more skills that we're going to test you on that you haven't gotten to yet. Well, that's how, it, that's how it arrived in my home, because my son would bring home his agenda, and there would be three or four problems in the agenda. And he, I said, what are these? And he said, uh, those are going to be on the test but they hadn't gotten to that material yet. But the teacher knew that. And so she was kind of get the, getting the kids ready for the test. I mean, to her credit, she tried to do something about the fact that they were gonna be tested on things that hadn't been taught yet. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I thought, what a, what a strange way to educate children. Yeah. Um, and the core, what, wasn't it the core curriculum? Yeah, Common Core. That common Core. Yeah. A couple of years ago, two years ago, we had Common Core. No much are they still doing that in schools? Some, some, but but because it's the expectation that every teacher at a certain level will be on the same material on the same day throughout the school year. Yeah. So and changes classes or changes schools or something, they'll be getting walk around. So if you move if you move from Florida to um, Pennsylvania, 
and you're in, Mar it's March 2nd of your third grade year, you could go into that Pennsylvania classroom and you'd be on the same lesson on March 2nd um, of third grade. That would be the overall goal. Um, though it ended up, of course, where different states and different districts did it differently. So, <laughs> so it didn't, didn't work anyway. But, but this idea that, that all kids will be doing the same thing in the same way on the same day um, is not how learning works. It's just not how it works. But that's the way schools are structured. So because schools are structured this way, um, they have to be structured some way. I mean, there has to be some structure. But because schools are structured this way that when you're five years old, you go to kindergarten and all kindergarten kids yeah. should be able to learn how to read. Right. Well, there are a lot of young boys who are not yet ready to learn how to read. But that doesn't matter. They, there's still the expectation. So if an individual can't do the work, then there has to be something wrong with the student. And that's the other sad fact of this process is that we can't change the entire school system. Right. So if there's a problem, it has to be in the student. Right. You know, and not that we're blaming the student, but if there's a problem, it has to reside there. If you can't do it, there has to be something wrong with you. Right. And so if, the inter if there's the, to be an intervention, the intervention is to adjust the child. Right. Right, right. So uh, that, that's and that's a problem. Um, and then what that leads to is then we we so we adjust things. And so we might um, again change our expectations and say, well, instead of having to learn twenty vocabulary words, somebody has to learn ten vocabulary words. Or um, instead of um, this type of problem, he's only presented with that type of problem. And even if the student starts to see some success, he, he recognizes that what he's being expected to do is different than what is expected to do, what the other students are expected to do. <laughs> the message you're giving him is you're not as competent. Right. Absolutely. You know, poor God love you, just not as competent as everybody else in the room. Right. What a, what a message to send a kid. Right. So what, yeah, what does the kid see from that? And so that certainly, as we've talked about before, can lead to that helplessness, it can lead to that agency or self, um, self concept problem. Um, and those are the things that lead, that can carry on from year to year, um, from teacher to teacher and class to class, um, that causes long-term problems for students. Right. And so toward the end of the article, toward the end of his essay, he talks about a particular um, thing that had personal um, thing that happened to him. Uh, one of his students, uh, undergraduate, brought him a note from um, special services, um, the Office of Student Services, that said that this particular student had a dis she had a logic disorder, and that um, she be tested only in ways that are not logically challenging. And when he asked when he asked her what that was, um, <laughs> poor child, she burst into tears and said, "It means I'm stupid." And um, he said, "Well, wait a minute. Before you dissolve completely, let's let's do this. Let let's see how you do in the course." Uh, take the first or second test. Let's see how you do. And if you do okay, that's fine. She did the test and she did fine and she did well in the course without any accommodations because he didn't know what to do about, you know, how could you, and, and he told her, he said, well, you're kind of being logical right now because you came up here and you explained this to me. That's all logical. And, and the, the student did well in the course and didn't need any accommodations. Right. Um, so, do you want to succeed? 
I think of these kids who are succeeding because they have accommodations and they know it's not theirs. Right. They know that they know that the that things have been made easier for them. Mm-hmm. And that that is good. On the one hand, it's good that we make accommodations, but on the other hand, we're giving this other message that you need something extra. You need because you're not confident. And that's what that's what Gray is saying here. Is that you're not confident. So we need to help you in ways that we don't help others. Absolutely. Right. And and kids see that and they feel right. that. And they, and they know that so but um, on the one hand you some students do need accommodations right right so as we read through this article we had our own viewpoints yeah yeah and, and i think that he's he's mostly right i mean there there are a lot of times and and again working in the schools really has opened my eyes to a lot of this, um where we you know, there are people who are very willing to throw out labels and identify students, you know, quote unquote, identify students as this or with that, um, very willy nilly, like just throwing them out there and um, uh, providing all these accommodations and changes to, to things. Um, and, you know, they're unnecessary. Um, you know, there's not really an issue. We just need to adjust this or adjust that or, or bring pe- make people aware of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a lot of situations where labels are used unnecessarily, right. um, especially when it comes to learning difficulties, because there isn't any, as we said at the beginning, there isn't any hardcore diagnostic um, definitive um, procedures that we can use to say, this is a brain with a learning disability. Right, right. So we don't know for absolute certain, you know, if a person has diabetes, we can measure things to say this, has, this is diabetes. Um, we can't do that with learning disabilities. Right. That's right. The neuroimaging is not a diagnostic tool. There's, right. no, there's no brain study that, that, would, that would say you have this. Yeah. Right. Just doesn't, we don't have the technology. Right. Second, he's right. Labels can have a positive effect or a negative effect. Right. Absolutely, absolutely true. Um, and schools do make faulty assumptions about readiness. We know that some kids are and some kids are not ready. Some kids learn how to read, not just recognize words. Some kids can read when they're three years old. Yeah. I have no idea why, because right. reading should require instruction. And for some kids, it doesn't. And I have no idea why a three-year-old can read, because everything I know suggests that you have to be taught these things. Right. Some kids don't have to be taught. Other kids can be seven or eight years old and they're still not quite ready to manage um, word recognition or, or even letter identification at seven or eight. And there's, no, and there's no evidence to suggest that kids who read at three years old end up being any more successful than students who are still learning to read at eight or nine years old. Right. If you take a freshman class at, a, at Brown or Harvard or Yale, any of these classes, I think you'd probably find that different kids learned how to read at different times. If you go back and do their histories, um, it didn't matter who walked at 10 months versus 14 months. Those things don't matter later on, okay? So some kids are ready, some aren't. And also schools make faulty assumptions about adequate yearly progress. We, uh, not all kids learn the same amount of information in 180 days, in 180 school days. Yeah. Right. I think that the biggest problem in, in agreeing with him, not that the problem is agreeing with him. I think I agree with him in that the problem is that 
there is nothing that comes to benefit from blaming the student um, to say that it's a problem with the student. Right. Uh, you know, we as the educators, we need to find ways to help reach the student. We need to find ways to help present mm -hmm. information that is in the student's best interest and helps the student. But to say, well, he has a learning disability. He has this, he has that, and he can't help it. Right. Um, that begins a process that has will have long-term effects. Right, right. Yeah, so we agree. It's a mistake to blame the child. You know? And also, this whole idea of a label, parents will frequently come to us and, does my child have X? Does my child have autism, dyslexia, dysgraphia? Uh, does my child have something? Knowing that, I think, is important because there are many people today who say, well, it, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. All that matters is where is the child functioning and what should I do? And that also, that's sort of the other extreme. Right. And, and that's what, that's, I think, part of what you and I struggle with, with this whole thing is that labels do, do, have, do have a function. They can have a positive function because it does make a difference if a child has autism versus a learning disability versus ADHD. Right. Because each of those decisions, and I don't call them labels, but each of those decisions will move you in a different direction as right. far as interventions are concerned. And so in that regard, um, labels do have, um, do have a, a place, they have a, they have a role to play in right. all of this, okay? We just can't say that the label is the cause. Right. The label gives us a direction, it's not right. a cause. Mm -hmm. Right, and we, and we have to make sure that when we do that, because when we appropriately identify some condition or something that's going on, the idea is to help the student with something that they can't do. Right. Um, what we have to be careful of is that we're not using some of these labels to give the student advantages. And right. so, you know, I've certainly seen where, you know, we can have a student who is making straight A's and the student and or the parent will come in and say that they want some accommodations. Right. Um, and you have no idea why. Well, the accommodations are there so that because you know he he's making or, or she's making 90, a 92%, and I think that she could make a 98 or 99%. Right. That's that's um, that's right. going to potentially do damage. Right. Uh, that's right. That's it does damage. Yeah, it does damage to the kid because let's say a child is succeeding in school and has a diagnosis of ADHD. Right. Well, technically, you could get that student extra time on tests. Right. Okay. I mean, technically, legally, you can you can request extra time on tests. But if the student is already doing well, mm -hmm. why request right. extra time? And you say, well, I want every advantage. Well, okay, then let's take. Then we should have a discussion about an accommodation versus an advantage. Right. Am I seeking an accommodation? for something my child can't do, or am I seeking an advantage so my child will do better? Right. Okay. And I think the idea with accommodations was for kids who couldn't do it without the accommodation, okay? Not to give students an advantage, right? And so I think it's important to have that discussion too about are we seeking an accommodation or are we seeking an advantage? Because the fact remains there are kids who do need some extra help. Yeah, you know, most students, 80 
percent or so, 80, 85% of students will do well, they'll do fine. And um, they don't need a label, they don't need any support or assistance, but there are students who need some additional help. And, and they, you know, having them identified, as you said a moment ago, is helpful to say that it's this problem versus that problem is very helpful right. um, in, in creating ways to help the students succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I realize that it's a, it's a tricky thing to think of these labels and you can say, well, this child is not doing well, so we say that she has a learning disability. What we're, but we have to be careful that we don't say she does, she's not doing well because she has a learning disability. That's just our, she has this, not this, right. okay? It's important to say she has a learning disability, not an intellectual impairment. Absolutely. Those, that's an important distinction. So the labels do help us make uh, important decisions, okay? Um, that, that, you know, the, there, there's a reason why this term, as problematic as it is, uh, came up and, and, it, and it happened way back in the 60s because and it was born uh, about the same time as the civil rights movement because parents were saying, my child is not mentally impaired, intellectually impaired, but she's failing in school. So there's something else going on here. So don't treat my child as though she's into, and that was the only explanation we had for a very long time. Is if you didn't do well, on, if you didn't do well in school, you were impaired, you were intellectually impaired. And these parents are saying, we don't want our children labeled as being intellectually impaired. There's something else going on. And that's that it was at one of those meetings where the term learning disabilities was first. You have a disability in learning. You don't have an intellectual impairment. So again, the original label um, had a positive impact right. on a very large number of kids and families. Right, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, and it, as well it should be, you know, you know, we have to remember that our, our obligation is to, is to not do harm. You know, we don't want to harm our students. We want to um, help them. We want to assist them. And we have to figure out what best way to do that. Right. Um, and, you know, we go through these ebbs and flows of, you know, we think this is good for some time and then we think that that's good for some time. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to look at these short and long-term effects of some of these decisions so that, right. we, so that we help students in the best way we can. Right. Yeah, because so what our obligation, do no harm, first of all. Okay, don't ever do, regardless of, of the vocabulary used, do no harm. But what but we want to do some good. We want to have some positive impact. But what does that mean? And I think for, for you and me, um, I think what that means is that we want to provide assistance to those who truly need it. Yeah. Of course. But we want to do that in ways that preserves not only their self-esteem and their sense of, of self-worth, but also the sense of self-efficacy that I have control, that I, I can do things right. to help myself. Absolutely. Um, and, and so that they're completely engaged. That's a topic that I think will take up another time. Yeah. Um, you know, we, um, and I think that's what we want to talk about next week. Yeah. I mean, yeah, next week we'll talk maybe more specifically about learning disabilities and, and what they are and, um, and what we do about them. And what we can do about them, right, in ways that preserve kids' uh, self-esteem and self-worth. Absolutely, because it's that that's going to carry them through and get them through a lot of things in their life. That's uh, right. Just learning to read, but lots of other things. Right. So, all right. Okay.
All right. Well, then that there is in it for today, then, right? That's it. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid.